Welcome to the last week on Earth with the Global Arena Research Institute. Today we have a special guest and friend of ours, Bill Shipsey, founder of Art for Amnesty, human rights activist, and the bringer of culture to all things. We'll be talking about his adventurous life of attaching U2, Sting, and Joan Baez to Amnesty International, founding and then bestowing the Ambassador of Conscience Award to Václav Havel, Nelson Mandela, Ai Weiwei, Alicia Keys, and other inspiring advocates of human rights. Enjoy, subscribe, and share. Tell us what the secret policeman's ball was. The secret policeman's ball was a, a comedy review, which was put together by a friend of mine, Martin Lewis, with the guys from Monty Python, with John Cleese and, and, and Michael Palin. And it was uh, the first one, I think it was 1976 or 1977, and it was a fundraiser for Amnesty and also a promotion for Amnesty. Uh, in 1976 would have been the 15th anniversary uh, of Amnesty, which was still quite a small organization at that stage, small relative to what it is now. With I think on last count, there were 10 million members and supporters uh, around the world. But this was a, a humorous take on politics, a humorous take on um um, engagement, sort of social uh, engagement by the by the Monty Python crew, but uh, enormously important because the those who saw it included Bono, included Peter Gabriel and Sting, and in fact, in one of the that they had a, a series of the I think the next one was called the Secret Policeman's Other Ball, and then they had um, some other funny name for the subsequent shows. But but Pete Townsend played in one. He did an acoustic version of Won't Get Fooled Again. And uh, it's really powerful, powerful uh, piece. Donovan performed, I think, Universal Soldier in one of them. And that's one of the first times that, that Bono says he saw or read anything about, um, about Amnesty International. Were you part of it at the time? It, or was this nope. something? No, this, was this something was, that inspired you to sort of connect the whole entertainment industry with human rights? Yeah, it, it was. I mean, it was something that sort of impinged on me when I, I was in 1976. I started university in 76. I was involved in my first amnesty action in 1977, but that was in California with Joan Baez and her sister. But, you know, very, you know, it, it was uh, it was the, the, the big um, artist event that led to the music events that took place in the 80s. So if the, if the 70s was comedy for Ireland, for Amnesty, the, the 80s was music. And it really came out of that because in some of the subsequent shows, there were musical pieces, including that first one I mentioned by, uh, by Pete Townsend. Is, so tell me more about your connection to the world of music. Like we know that you're, that you're friends with Bono and Sting, but what, what brought together your love of combining culture and human rights? That's a good question. In terms of the very first, it wasn't either um, it wasn't either you two or our sting or the others that came in the 1980s. But I think I mentioned in 1977, I was working on a J1 visa in the United States and um, traveled from Kansas City to California. What were you doing I in met... the United States? What job? I was working as a waiter in a country club. Yes, wonderful. Very, uh, five of us all had similar jobs. We bought this big boat of a car called, uh, um, uh, it was a, an Oldsmobile Delta 88, which had you know, a bench seat across the front. So you could, you could sit about 16 people in the, in the car, did about four miles 
to the gallon, which is about 0. 0.0 something to the liter. Not a very eco-friendly car. And then we drove to California. And in California, I worked in a shipyard uh, digging trenches, uh, but uh, was friendly there with this political activist who had been Joan Baez's English teacher and then her political mentor called Iris Sandpearl. And while there, Joan and her sister were taking part in a, an anti-death penalty rally outside San Quentin prison. And that was the first event I went to and she sang appropriately Bob Dylan's song, I Shall Be Released. So that really was the first thing that really impinged on me that artists could have an impact on uh, engagement. And then came back to Ireland, the end of 19, um, well, I was back in the, in, in the United States again in 1981, but back to Ireland in 1982. And then there was an art auction for, um, uh, for Amnesty, for the Irish section of Amnesty. And the very famous uh, Irish painter, although he's more often described as a British painter, Francis Bacon, donated uh, a triptych of oil paintings to Amnesty to sell. And we organized a very successful art auction in 1984 that raised enough money to allow Amnesty in Ireland to move from one rented room in a high rise to owning our own building. Uh, and coincidentally at that event, which was organized by an Irish Belgian artist called Louis Le Broque, um, the uh, these four young lads, Bono Edge, Sting, Bono, sorry, Bono Edge, Larry and Adam came along and that was their first engagement with Amnesty in 1984. In 1985, they did a, uh, a not a concert for, but they mentioned Amnesty at a Radio City Music Hall uh, concert in New York. And then the next summer, uh, you two, the reformed police, Peter Gabriel, Lou Reed, Joan Baez, uh, the Neville brothers toured across the United States for Amnesty in six concerts, started in San Francisco and finished with a huge concert on the, coincidentally, Bloomsday, the 16th of June, 1986, in Giant Stadium to 83,000 people for Amnesty. So that was a, a real highlight. But, you know, not only the musicians there, but Muhammad Ali came along to support Amnesty. And there were, you know, Michael, I remember Michael J. Fox being there and... It was uh, it, it transformed Amnesty USA within three months after that. The membership had, if not uh, trebled, had sort of doubled. And it also set in train an idea that the then uh, executive director of Amnesty USA, Jack Healy, had to do a world tour. Uh, and that was the Human Rights Now tour in 1988, which was sort of headlined by Bruce Springsteen, Sting, Peter Gabriel, Yusu Endur and Tracy Chapman. And that did that toured the world in a jet and played 30 concerts um, on every continent, finishing in, I think, Mendoza, Argentina, or, or Buenos Aires, um, having started in, uh, I mean, started in the United States. Sounds like a dream. I wish, I wish that was something I could yeah. be part of, a tour with music and, and human rights and, and No, it art. was. It was. And, you know, the, 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 the commitment of those artists, you know, from the 86 and, and 88 tour was, you know, phenomenal. They gave up, you know, a huge part of their touring lives in those years to, to, to tour for Amnesty. So it was uh, incredibly successful and, and, and incredibly impactful. And then personally, I was involved in the, I was on the, I was chair of the Irish section in the 80s and also a member of the international board from 87 to 89, uh, but um, took a quieter time in the 90s as I had 
two children born in the late 80s and then two more in the 90s, but came back in 2002 with a suggestion to start what became Art for Amnesty uh, with the then Secretary General, uh, Irene Khan. And um, so Art for Amnesty has been, the idea in 2002 started up really in 2003. So it's 18 years uh, that it is that it is now in operation. And in, in, a, in, in an, another uh, sort, of, sort of coincidence, when uh, jumping sort of ahead, to the, one of the things we did also in 2003 was the, to start the Ambassador of Conscience Award. And that was Amnesty's first real venture into um, presenting a, a high profile award. It's since it's really Amnesty's only global uh, award program. And that was conceived really with Václav Havel in mind. I mean, when I designed it and when I sort of shaped it and set out what it, you know, the type of person it that could be um, uh, eligible to receive it, it was it was very much framed around uh, then just recently uh, retired President Havel, and he came in November of two thousand and three to to Dublin to accept uh, the first award, and. There was another, obviously, Czech connection. My friend Peter Sis designed the poster for that. And it was, um, in a sense, coming full circle when President Havel died in 2011. And we decided to try to honor him with a tapestry at the airport that was to be named after him. The person who put me in touch with the atelier to make the tapestry in France was the artist Louis Le Broque, who put the auction with Francis Bacon together in 1984. So it sort of came back full circle. And Peter says, as you probably know, we've done 14 monumental memorial tapestries since the one we did for President Havel in 2012. And Peter Sis has designed uh, 11 of the 14 of those tapestries. So the Czech connection is uh, pretty strong. In fact, most people in Amnesty think I work for the Czech section of Amnesty International and not for... You, you could be our official ambassador to the world. <laughs> yeah, I, I would be quite happily so. I'd have to learn more than the two or three words of Czech I know. Speaking of the Prisoner of Conscious Award, I read your article for the Irish Times about Alexei Navalny and uh, Amnesty International awarding him the title Prisoner of Conscience, despite his previous history of um, nationalist sentiment and calling Muslims cockroaches. I was... I was impressed and then surprised that I'm impressed that you pulled out that fact about Navalny despite yourself joining in protests in the street for his release. I feel that in this day and age, we try and place absolute terms of value and identity on public fi figures, like you're either a racist, sexist, or you're a race and gender activist. You can either be a hero opposing Vladimir Putin, but you can't be a racist opposing Vladimir Putin. Do you think we've developed a world of dangerous and false extremes or does it have a purpose? Like, should we let it flourish? Yeah, no, I, I, I think there's a lot to that. I think that, you know, had Amnesty not designated him and given the, you know, this Amnesty badge of prisoner of conscience, uh, there would have been no story and no controversy. And, and Amnesty members around the world would have uh, campaigned for him just as, I think, uh, effectively and as, um, you know, 
sincerely. Um, but I, I think it, it's just it was a the, the badge that was applied to him, uh, which sort of is reserved. I mean, it, you know, it, it's obviously more current now in terms of uh, Alexei Navalny, and I think it's unfortunate, really unfortunate for Amnesty and for Alexei Navalny uh, that it happened because there's there's no doubt doubting Amnesty's commitment to try to oppose his release. And, and the story about him being designated, as it were, given a particular badge, and then that badge being taken away, that's become the story rather than the fact that he is unjustly imprisoned and shouldn't be there. But what I tried to do in the uh, article that I wrote for the Irish Times, which was in response to it, sort of what I regarded as an ill-informed uh, article by a, um, I don't know if he's Irish or English sort of professor in, in a university, which was, you know, accusing amnesty of mission creep and that we'd made the mistake because, you know, we were too thinly spread and that's why we'd make it, which, which I didn't agree with at all. But I wanted to, you know, point back to the historical position was when um, Nelson Mandela was first a prisoner of conscience in the very early 1960s. And then at his Rivonia treason trial, where he came out and endorsed the armed struggle, amnesty then took away the you know, they, they, they campaigned for his release and for a fair trial for him as a political prisoner, but they no longer regarded him as um, a prisoner of conscience. Now, there were lots of members in Amnesty because of the enormous emotional appeal uh, and rightly emotional appeal of Nelson Mandela that felt, you know, we should have made an exception for him. But I, I agreed that we shouldn't. I mean, if you have a, a particular designation for somebody as a you know, if you have a definition of a prisoner of conscience, which is an amnesty created term, and it applies to somebody who doesn't uh, use or advocate the use of violence, then if you do use or advocate the use of violence, then you're not, you may, you know, you may be of concern to amnesty for other reasons, but you're not a prisoner of conscience. And I think the founders of amnesty, which the, the, the founder was uh, Peter Benenson, but the Irish jurist and politician, Sean McBride was there from the very beginning. And one of the leading uh, founders was an English Quaker called Eric Baker. And, and I could understand that, you know, when they were wanting to devote resources to releasing people from prison, they didn't want to devote those resources to somebody uh, as a prisoner of conscience who, when they were released, might then turn around and, you know, kill the people that had or, or, or advocate the killing of the people who had um, who, who had imprisoned them in, in the first instance. So I just think it was an unfortunate uh own goal or self-inflicted wound that amnesty, you know, uh, gave to uh, the to Putin and to to the to the regime. And I, I just hope that you know the distraction of it won't last, and that you know that both Navalny and his family and supporters will see that amnesty continues um, to work uh, to secure his release, whatever, as it were, badge that that, that is sort of applied uh, to him. Okay, so it's not necessarily connected. I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've been noticed. We've been noticing this general narrative of extremes going on in the media, in in general, in general social um, interaction. That that there's this new trend that there's extremes. Like you either are one thing or you're you're against it. No, sorry, I, I, I didn't really answer your question. I wasn't trying to avoid it. I, I agree that there is that and the polarization that, that that has occurred and the polarization that has been made more easy 
by social media. I mean, my I, I, I tend not to look at the uh, the comments that you know under ones you know when you write because generally those who react to what you've written they're either trolls or they you know they're people who have very strong views one way or the other M- you know more moderate people tend to either agree or disagree with what you've said in a quieter way they don't they tend not to jump up and down so I think I think that the, the the, the polarization is amplified by the the way social media is used. And uh, just you may remember one of the projects I took to Prague at the end of 2019, just before COVID, was the Art 19 project. And that's a fine art project. It's not run under the Art for Amnesty umbrella. It's another company and another project that I run with three German friends. But one of the finest pieces and I'll get into trouble if I say it's my favorite piece, but it's certainly, it's one of the 10 favorite pieces of the 10, uh, let me say, is by William Kentridge, a South African artist. And his beautiful piece is, it's got words on it and it says, God's opinion is unknown. And William Kentridge did a wonderful article for us, which was printed in Deutsch in the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, but I can get it for you in English as well. But it's, he very much wrote it from the perspective, you know, that, you know, whether it's Christian or Muslim or, you know, right on or right or left, people ha- are adopting very extreme, you're either for me or against me. And if you're not for me, you're demonized, whether it's demonized by left and right. And, and, and he, you know, argued and said that, that that his piece was an argument against that, and and so he he expressed it in terms of you know God's opinion being unknown. Which, if there is a God, I happen to agree with. He, I think he he tends not to express her, he or she tends not to ex, not tends not to express her or his opinion. Do you think there's a like a nice path forward where these things will balance out, where these extremes will stop being extremes? That will ha- maybe that will stop feeling like we need to express ourselves in extremes. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I, I think the, the first thing that needs to happen is that social media organizations need to be treated as news organizations and not as, you know, open internet. You can say what you like. I mean, Facebook and Google and the other uh, channels, they're, they're, they're news organizations. They should be subject to the same constraints as Hospodarsky Novene or the Irish Times or the New York Times. They should be, you know, regulated in that way and not, you know, for Mark Zuckerberg to be able to sort of hide behind, well, we're just providing this platform for people to freely express their opinion. They're not that. And I didn't follow very closely the controversy in Australia between Facebook and the news organizations, but I think the Facebook had to ultimately back down. And I think that's a, a good sign. One, one of the strongest pieces I saw um, in terms of mapping a, a way forward for a less polarized world was actually a, a speech that Sasha Baron Cohen, who's Borat and who is also Ali G gave in, not, not in, in role, not playing as Borat or, or Ali G, but he gave a talk to, I, I think it was the Anti-Defamation League in the United States, but it's a brilliant, brilliant, uh, both expose of the, the, the danger and damage of the powerful social media companies and, and, and why they need to be, you know, reined in. I think it was in connection to 
Art 19, I wrote this quote down because I really liked it, but you said, appreciation of art like empathy and conscious is a uniquely human quality. And my question is, how are we continuing to be in touch with this in a world that's so overwhelmed with the fears of technology and general progress and everything you've just said? Yeah. The, the, uh, the answer is, uh, I suppose the honest answer is I don't know how, how we are. I, I suppose one, one of the benefits, if you can say it's a benefits of the, of the pandemic and, and, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, minimizing the misery and the death and the, you know, the hurt and anguish and depression that that's caused to, if not billion, you know, certainly tens and hundreds of millions of people around the world. And it's terrible. It's just awful. But if there is a silver lining or there are silver linings, it is the fact that it has perhaps forced us to, to, to be more reflective, at least, about the, the direction we were going in or what we regarded as important or the, the whole sort of increase, the, the sort of year-on-year the, the year almost exponential increase in the pace of things and the pace of sort of change. And, and I was sort of reminded by one of Gandhi, one of Mahatma Gandhi's quotes were in the 1930s, you know, which was a lot different than the, than the 2020s, but he said, there's more to life than increasing its speed. And I think one of the poss possible benefits of the pandemic, when we've all had to sort of slow down and when um, we're not sort of frenetically flying uh, around the world to try to, you know, do things and organize events and, and projects, which was sort of my life up until the, 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 the pandemic. I think maybe we, 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 it, it has forced a more thoughtful, reflective view as to, you know, the impact we have. I think it's also, hopefully, and, and it may be, I hope it's not too late, it may uh, provide the additional stimulus to the wake-up call we need about the damage we have done that, sort of, to our planet. And when I sort of think back, and I mentioned, uh, I think sort of in our earlier when we were just chatting about this enormous car that we bought for very little money in the 1970s in America, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's shameful to think how wasteful it was of resources, how uneconomical it was and how damaging um, it was. And maybe, you know, what the pandemic has forced in terms of um, the, this sort of slowing down and that, you know, we, we've had an opportunity to see how the earth can restore itself given a little bit of an opportunity and assistance that it might, you know, it, it might affect our travel patterns and plans into the future. It might make us more reflective about um, how we treat the, the planet and what we, what we do to make sure that, you know, that there is a future for, uh, for our children and grandchildren. I mean, an actual future, I don't mean a, I mean, an existential future as opposed to one that's good and prosperous and, 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 and wealthy, but one where there is a, a planet for them to enjoy. That's, that's the one hope that may come out of this. There's no guarantee that we won't all forget about it once we are all vaccinated as I got my first vaccine, my AstraZeneca vaccine uh, this morning. Uh, there's no guarantee that we won't revert to type, but I, I'm hoping that we won't. And I'm hoping... Um, that um, that you know a, a, a sort of a new generation will you know really you know step up you know to the 
to the plate um, and, and, you know, young sort of activists like Greta Thunberg or like Malala Yousafzai or like Joshua Wong in Hong Kong, they are certainly, you know, cause for pride. Um, and they, you know, they show a commitment and a determination, which gives sort of some real cause for hope that the things might, uh, might be better. Um, uh, you know, when we, when we do emerge to what, what we're all describing as the new normal, I don't think it will be, I mean, it, it will, it's funny how, how uh, adaptive we all are in that, in a way that we're so long in either lockdown or curfew that it is, <laughs> it becomes normal because um, that which you become used to is normal. The fact that it is abnormal relating relative to what you had before, I, I, you know, our memory spans are such that we, you know, we, we, we sort of joke in, in Paris about, um, you know, when somebody talks about going to a restaurant, you ask, what's a restaurant? But it's been so long since that experience has been there um, that, you know, it's, it's a, you know, the, the, the new normal or what becomes normal there's certainly a possibility that we will have an ability to shape it rather than it uh, shaping us uh, into the future. Bill, when there was so many things that, that inspired so many questions that you just said, um, one of those is, is more a reflection on my side. When you said that, that we might have found some more mindfulness because of the COVID lockdowns and, and, and this, you know, the slowing the pace, I would very much agree for the last spring. Well, it seems to me that we managed pretty good to get ourselves busy. <laughs> you yeah. know, uh, only we just don't see people, real people. So uh, so there might be some sort of underlying restlessness of the humankind that we just can't you know, keep sitting down. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah. I hate myself for doing that because I really enjoyed the, the three months last last year. Yeah. I did too. and I spent it with two of my sons and did lots of you know renovation work on the on the house in the US and 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 you know I enjoyed it but but um I don't know it was Pascal said that the the, the real cause of I don't have the quote exactly but the, the the real cause of trouble in the world is man's inability to sit still in a room um and I think yeah. it applies more to men than to women but I think if there is to be a future uh you, you know when one looks at the countries that have successfully uh, handled the pandemic best the, the common denominator tends to be that they were run by women rather than by by us by us guys when you, okay. you know, when you look look at that and and maybe maybe that's one of the the wake up calls that's that's needed uh, that's needed going forward Another thing that um, came to my mind that I was definitely not prepared, but when you when you said that you've had that big car and now you feel ashamed, yeah. I, 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 I think I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. However, I would when I'm thinking about the 80s and not that I would remember it that that well, but I think about the 80s as sort of ignorant innocence. Uh, <laughs> do yeah. you do, deep down do you miss that or you're happy that we really progress to where we are now? Yeah, well, you're you're obviously much younger than you even think, because I was talking about the 70s, um, and it was 1970s at least, not not 1870s. 
yeah, there was there was certain sort of innocence about it, like pre-internet. I mean, I remember <laughs> in 1978, uh, three of us bought an old Mercedes car for 400 pounds and drove it to India. Actually, drove it to the. My children remind me we were not allowed to take it into India, so to the Pakistani-Indian border. But you know, there was a sort of naivety about that time, and also you know, you were you were out of touch. I mean, the way your parents contacted you, the phones were prohibitive and and really difficult. So you you your parents sent letters to what was called post restante. So it would be at the general post office in the next city you arrived at, um, and. You know, you you were you were out of touch for two or three months, really, apart from the the letter. So it was a time of sort of innocence, and then even in terms of Michael the Amnesty, those ventures I mentioned in 1986 and 1988, you know, we had one eight hundred numbers in the US, so that people could join. There was no you know, www.amnesty.org to you know to donate or, or, or connect to. So they were, it was a, it was a time of. Uh, of of innocence uh, or at least greater innocence for sure now back to more serious business how are uh, how are your you know we've met in 2019 uh, when you were um, promoting the the Eleanor Roosevelt uh, project and then the, um, the 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 mural in Prague uh, how are these projects these days um, I have uh, it's 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 sort of one of those funny um, inversions. I have more projects in development and and in fact being realized than ever. I think at last count it was seventeen. Um, um, some will require an actual sort of physical space, uh, you know, physical sort of freedom. Some of them uh, won't. But there is, I think, there's this sort of pent up hunger. Uh, that's waiting to be released in terms of the energy, the sort of creative sort of energy. So um, it hasn't been, and, and in, in another way, the fact that we have not been able to travel and that we we, we spend a lot of our lives on Zoom calls. I mean, I, I think initially I, I, I not so much resisted them, but was sort of reluctant. I said, you know, this is, this is not human contact and it isn't human contact. I mean, I don't get to hug either uh, you or, or Odessa. Um, and even if we were together, it would be elbow to elbow. Um, but um, it, it has, in, in another sense though, it, is, it, has, um, it, it has enabled us to travel less and to waste less time getting to places. And, and the physical where you are, has become less important. So, you know, it's, it's, you don't have to be like in New York to be at the center of the world. You can be at the center of your world in the mountains bordering on Germany in the Czech Republic or in the, in the Marais in Paris. So there's, there's been a democratization of location and geography brought about by the, the pandemic. And I actually don't, I think when we get back to the, what we describe as the new normal and we can all travel. I think we will still use the new technology tools and we should use the new technology tools because if I can do this podcast with you and I don't have to fly to Prague and take a taxi into the city center and go to docks and get a studio, it's, it's, um, there's an efficiency. Uh, there's a, there's a, 
is a, not just in terms of your personal energy and, and Odessa's to, to try and set it all up, but but it's it's all easy and and doable. And that's you know that that's good. We obviously have to make choices, and and you can you know we've gone from that. You know, was it a, whatever the song that was like? something like I don't know how many hundreds of channels uh, and nothing on you know we, we there's, there's obviously the choice of what we can see and what we watch is uh, is enormous and it's huge but at least we're able to produce content and have these d- discussions and dialogues in a very easy way where you know you don't have to chase me for weeks to say well I'm not I won't be back in Prague till then and no you won't be here till then so you know it, it's it's wonderful to be able to do this in this sort of easy way. I mean, I can't wait to us till we're together and I want to go flying with you again is what I really want to do. Um, no, not all I want to do, but I would love to, to sort of, you know, be with you in the same room and in the same restaurant and, you know, th- that physical proximity that we've, we've, we've all lost over the last, um, the last year is unfortunate, but having said that being able to do things like this is good and and you know i think uh, because i shared it with you um i i did a conversation with peter sis which was a, a stroll down 18 years of our memory lanes t- uh, together for the vassal have a library foundation uh, we could go sunday and you know to be able to do that to have pavla niklova in uh, new york to have peter in his home in irvington to have me in paris and and for people around the world to be able to tune into that inexpensive i mean without i mean you were you were invited to make a donation but for for little or no effort was uh what was good so there's some lessons that we've got to learn about how better to organize ourselves and i hoping also that you know we you know in what i was saying about the there being more to life than than increasing its speed the, the three-month lockdown that you said you enjoyed so much and that I also enjoyed with my sons uh, so much, there's a, there's a sort of, I have a little bit of guilt about that as well because, you know, you, if you are, an, you know, a, a socially engaged and active or, you know, person who wants to, if not affect change, at least stop bad things from happening by, by taking action, uh, you feel guilty that you're locked up and you're not able to do it. But I, I also feel that it was a good opportunity for all of us to say, well, you know, it's, it is time to take it a little bit easier and smell the coffee, mm-hmm. the proverbial coffee, and spend time in in the in 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 the in the country and spend time with each other and 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 really, you know, in trying to find the time with with your friends rather than the the the, the sort of frenetic uh, project, you know. Um, one after the other. Uh, well, I have to. I have to remember the 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 democratization of of lo- of, of of locality or of all places. The, the the notion that you it was it's really good. Uh, the the way how how the you know the the, the space for meeting meetings got uh, democratized, um, <clears throat> and also and you spoke about the sort of guilt. I, I well, we're not engaged in a in in activities that would lead to actually uh, preventing f- bad things from happening. But the truth is that, uh, you know, in 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 August, looking back, I saw that people managed to write books over the four or five months. Well, all I managed was to get my thoughts together. So <laughs> there was definitely guilt there. <laughs> yeah. But looking back, you know, again, 
I think that it was very worth it, and 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 and, and we got things speeded up. Um, now, as, if we still have time, there is one more question, which is which is maybe very too too obvious. Um, and uh, feel free to to uh, dismiss the question. But um, do you see some, you know, what, except for the, I mean, <laughs> say for the obvious, what what impact on art in general do you see uh, around yourself given the the pandemic, you know? And, and then, well, as, as I said, not, not, not digitalization of theaters yeah. or museums, but some more conceptually or more philosophically. Yeah. I think the the art that comes out of the pandemic, uh, both the during and the after, will be it'll be very very interesting. One of the most uh, interesting books I read was a collection that I it was the New York Review of Books put together, and they asked a number of writers from around the world to to do a story about themselves in the pandemic and it was it was modeled on the Boccario's Decameron which in itself was a book about a group of friends who moved out of Florence during the bubonic plague to a, a very nice house in the in the Tuscan countryside and they talked about the impact of the pandemic upon them so some of those stories were really really powerful and I would sort of commend I can't um Emma here may be able to remember the book that that, that I got a present of. That I'll find it for you. Any, it's really and also um, just to add to. I mean, I, I think Michael, you and I are of the same. We we must have had the sort of same Irish Catholic mother upbringing. This sort of sense of guilt that I wasn't reading more. I had it as well. I mean, I wanted to, you know, read all of Proust and all of Joyce and all of that. And you know, I was lucky if I got to read articles in the New Yorker. But the, these the series of essays are, are you know, they're 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 Bill's attention span length. Uh, so they might they might they you know you might be able to get the whole book read. I was just able to get a story read. But I, I will re- recommend it to you, and and, and I'll send you. Um, uh, the, the the link uh, for it. But in terms of the other arts, I mean, I think this has been a really difficult time for the performing arts and for, for musicians. And, you know, when you see the trillions of euro and hundreds of trillions of Czech crown that, that has been, you know, lost in the sense of not being able to be spent in restaurants and in bars and, 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 you know, but also with music venues and, and concerts and that the hardship that that must be imposing on, uh, on artists, particularly at a time when, because of the new paradigm in music, you know, the spotification of music and the, 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 the expectation that you can uh, you can consume music without having to pay for it, other than when we were growing up, you paid for your LPs and you paid for your compact discs and you paid for your cassettes. Now that's different, um, and and you're lucky if you if they're getting you know fractions of cents per download of their songs. So the 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 the, the way the music industry had developed was that artists had to tour. To earn money because they weren't earning it from their records. It used to be that they toured to promote their records, but now they tour to make money because they're not making it on their records. So the fact that they've lost the the, the sort of billions in 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 rights by people not respecting that 
if you write a song, you're entitled to a reward for it uh, in terms of recording, and then to have lost the ability to to earn money from singing publicly to an audience that has to pay. It, it's um, it just doesn't. I mean, it's just phenomenal how uh, just the the impact that that must have had, and the number of people that must have you know, gone out of the music industry because of that. It, um, I, I will definitely let Odessa speak now. It just reminded, and we'll probably cut this off. But it just reminded me of, you know, going to uh, to a store with three hundred crowns, and you have to choose one CD or one album that you can buy, and yeah. you bring it home, like religiously put it in, and you listen over and over. While now I'm sitting here and I'm like boringly, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. browsing all the new albums you know whatever and it must have it must have a, a, a big impact on how we appreciate music and, and art I, I haven't got to think to think about it and and we're trying to fight this I'm trying to fight this impulse to just browse through whatever there is on on iPhone music yeah. whatever but that this must you're right this must have an incredible negative impact on on the way people appreciate music well, you were obviously very conscientious going in and making that choice. What I would do is I like Bob Dylan, so I would buy my brother a Bob Dylan album for his birthday. He didn't like Bob Dylan, but that way I got you know double. <laughs> I he, think I did that. He, he still reminds me of. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Respect. Yeah. I might have done that a couple of times too. <laughs> I, I'm again, you know, I'm, I'm obviously conscious of the uh, the the. The generation gap between us when you talk about CDs. Mine was uh, uh, vinyl records, and you played them till you scratched the living daylights out of them. You played them so often that it was just one big scratch from one end of uh, Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water to the end. Speaking of that, I have to say this, but I mean, originally in the 80s, what would actually happen is that. My father would borrow a big because we did not have the the gramophone, the the record player. Hmm. So he would borrow it, and we would get the cassette player, and we would be transferring the, the the LPs to a cassette. And that's you know, so it would it was you know to get it was a month long project. Yeah, I, <laughs> that, yeah. I was just reminded we 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 got a record player over a year ago now, and we every time we would go to Prague we would go to the antiquariat where they would sell records out record albums and I would I started because we wanted to buy everything I wanted to buy all the Beatles I wanted to buy you know all the classical music everything that I found so I started to realize okay I have to really create a system so I started looking at the price and how many songs were on the album and I would try to get the most amount of songs for the least amount of money and because I became so focused on this specific way of looking for albums i found mm -hmm. I, was, i wanted to buy a charles aznavour record mm -hmm. and i found one which had like 30 songs and it was only 150 crowns and i was like this is gold bingo yeah. and i bought it and i brought it home and we realized the reason it was so cheap and had so many songs is because it's him singing in german Okay. <laughs> so now we have a record with 30 songs of him singing in german um but it's a, it's funny anyway <laughs> I hope you learned the lesson. I did, um, yeah. I will no longer uh, buy cheap records just because it has a lot of songs. <laughs> you will no longer buy Charles Aznavour in German. That's, that's, a, good, Definitely. that's a good one to keep. 
when you're being interviewed or when you're having a conversation about any kind of topic and you can pick a topic if you want, what is it that you want to be asked? What is it that you think is missing from the world of questions to you? I suppose the one thing that I perhaps would like to be asked is, um, you know, what would you really have liked to have been? I mean, I was 38 years qualified uh, as, a, as a practicing as a lawyer. So that's what I did. But um, one of the questions maybe I'd like to be asked, and I'm not sure I have a great answer, was what, what would you have liked to, you know, if you weren't a barrister, a trial lawyer for your your life what would you have liked to be that's one well what would you what would I, I suppose I would like you know in, in a way although that's what I did I mean what I uh, what I like more I, I suppose what I, in a sense I think I am better at is in terms of um, I'm an ideas person and uh, I like conceiving of ideas for projects and then realizing them so I suppose what I would like love to have been, you know, financially able to do that all along. I mean, I, I shouldn't complain because, you know, the, working as a lawyer gave me a lot of personal freedom because it pays well in, 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 in when you're doing reasonably well as a lawyer. So it gave me a lot of freedom to do what I wanted to do. So I think maybe that's what I would have like to have been done and maybe you know if bill gates in the morning phoned and said listen we'd like you to head up the bill and melinda gates foundation and give out gazillions every year i think i'd probably give that a second a second a second look so to speak yeah it's nice having all that money yeah. and under to 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 give out to projects that you deem fit yeah. Although, you know, it's money is, I mean, one of the things not having it in terms of like the art for amnesty projects and having to raise for every one that I do, it makes you much more efficient. Uh, you know, you, you get to run things on nothing uh, as opposed to having sort of all, uh, all that money. Yeah. So, okay. Last question then. Tomorrow's headlines, what would you like them to be? I mean, you know, in terms of the, you know, the, the, the stimulus packages that, that have been put together, I mean, if, if you can remember back before COVID, the thought that, you know, that governments would spend trillions to give money to people was, you know, you, you know, the, the, the economists, the, the, you, you were just laughed out of court. So what, what, what COVID has taught us in terms of what's possible and necessary in terms of, uh, you know, our, our, the need to, to print money to make sure that people, you know, live and, and, and can sustain themselves. And, and Biden is getting a lot of, you know, credit for getting his package through, which, you know, will not only, you know, cause a stimulus in the US, but, but, but because of that, you know, around the world. What I'd love to see is that being translated into the worlds of arts and culture and for there to be, you know, sort of an announcement, a sort of a matching funding announcement for arts and culture where, you know, they're, they're not always the, the, you know, the poor, the, the poor cousin of, uh, of every other uh, project. Um, I, I remember like there was a sort of Quaker sort of quote or a, uh, uh, which looked forward to a world in which, um, you know, um, hunger would have been, uh, conquered and that the Navy had to run a bake sale to buy battleships. So I would love to have a world in which, you know, it is announced that, you know, the fight against 
global warming and the fight to feed the people on the earth and and that was going to be funded and that the you know that in future the the the, the military would have to do what we in the non-profit sector have had to do for years and actually go out and fundraise for it. I won't go to their bake sales, but I'd prefer them to have to do it. Thank you for listening. Next week, we have Sandeep Aslakar, Indian thought leader on conflict resolution and global futures, and the president of the Strategic Foresight Group. Until then, have a great day. Great day.